Hello, and welcome to the August 2016 edition of Organising to Win, the monthly trade union podcast from the Unison Northwest region. I'm Kevin Lucas, and this month's edition features prominent Irish trade unionist Ethel Buckley, and we speak to a group of Unison Cornerstones Health Branch activists about the practical steps they have taken in recent years to build a Unison branch strong enough to deliver big wins for members. Ethel Buckley is head of SIP2's Private Sector Services Division. SIP2 is Ireland's Services, Industrial, Professional and Technical Union, and Ethel leads that union's organising strategies and activities in some of the most union-hostile industries in the private sector, and she does it with a tremendous amount of success. We were delighted to have Ethel come and speak to us at this year's Unison Northwest Organising to Win convention. Ethel is a feminist, a socialist, and a great friend of Unison Northwest, and in the following interview with James Bull, Ethel talks about the power of community alliances and the importance of effective workplace mapping. In today's climate, how can unions uh, work with the communities that, 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 that are around them to win campaigns? Well, I think this is one of the um, big issues confronting unions around the world today. It seems like increasingly um, it's becoming difficult for unions to rely only on traditional tactics of industrial action. Um, so if you look at some of the patterns across Europe um, and outside of Europe, governments are increasingly restricting um, trade unions' capacity to um, take effective industrial action. Um, in Certainly in Ireland, it's becoming quite restrictive in terms of picketing and um, the sorts of picketing that we would have um, seen in the 60s or 70s or 80s. Um, we, we have increasingly um, um, litigious employers and we seem to be, across our movement in Ireland, increasingly exposed to injunctions by employers. So unions, um, by necessity, are becoming very cautious about the use of industrial action and you know while that presents us with a challenge we should also see it as an opportunity because we need to become more inventive about other forms of action that we can take Um, and i suppose there's a number of different strands to that i feel Um, but, but one of them is um, ensuring that our workplaces are as well organised as they possibly can be if we do have to engage in action. Um, and the other one is, you know, exploring whether there are ways that the communities in which our workplaces are situated, um, are there ways that we can reach out to communities um, or other supporters or allies to help us to campaign on our issues. Um, And I suppose I'm particularly interested in my own work in um, looking at new forms of action and new forms of campaigning. Um, I've had to, by necessity, um, in a number of years ago, um, maybe in 
2014, I think, um, we had a dispute in Dublin uh, with a private bin company, the Greyhound dispute, um, which was a difficult dispute. And in that dispute, we certainly um, used a whole suite of activities to support um, our members who were taking industrial action on the picket line. Um, by engaging with the communities um, that the workers, both the, both the communities that the workers lived in and the communities that the workers serviced. So what kind of examples um, were there? What kind of ways did you engage the community in that campaign? Well, uh, one of the things that struck us, I suppose, is at any given time, a limited number of our members were on picket duty. So you know, in order to keep the, the strike cohesive, um, we thought about other um, activities and tasks that other strikers could do. And also we had to find ways to allow strikers, families, particularly wives and partners, I would say, to become involved. So one of the things we did was we leafleted the communities, the homes that they collected the bins from. And we went straight to their customers, I suppose, um, to try to convert them into supporters. Um, because the company was going to their customers um, and portraying the dispute um, in, a, in a way that was not helpful to the union. Um, as often happens, they were saying that the um, strike was unjustified and the union was greedy and the workers were greedy. Um, and if only the union would be reasonable, then their bins would be collected. And we needed to go and tell our side of the story. And did you find that uh, people in the community were receptive to that message? We did, we did. And, you know, the thing about that is as well, um, that's important to say, I think, is it's, you know, we don't always get a fair hearing as, as unions in the media, in the, in the mainstream media, in the established media. In fact, very often the established media is hostile to our cause and our message and we need as unions to find new ways to um, communicate directly um, with our with communities and potential supporters and yes in that dispute we found people to be very sympathetic to the strikers when we were able to go ourselves to them so so as well as leafleting the communities where the workers were you know, lift the bins. We actually held public meetings in those communities as well. And we explained the strike to people. We had strikers speak to their own communities. Um, and, you know, it was all in an effort to build an alliance of support um, around us. So in what practical ways did that uh, community support help the bin workers struggle? Well, we of course, as a trade union, we, we can take industrial action at the workplace mm -hmm. um, and we, under the Industrial Relations Act, have immunities to do that. But, you know, quite spontaneously and separate, separately to the union, um, communities took their own actions. Um, the bin company um, employed scabs during the strike and certain communities, um, you know, made it clear to the company that they didn't want um, their bin men to be replaced by scab labour during the dispute. And um, they actually took direct action, some communities, on the trucks. Um, it was very controversial. Um, it was very contentious. 
it was something that the union was not involved in directly. Um, but it was a, certainly was a new dynamic in the dispute and probably something that the employer did not figure on happening. Um, and you know, I think it is really important in when we talk about um, c community organising that it's it's important that unions are effectively supported by communities. I'm I'm quite interested in in trying to figure out you know ways that we can um, reach out to communities and and ask them to help us and ask them to align with us on on our. Um, priorities, as well as the other work that unions are doing, which is to um, support communities in their priorities. Mm. So, so it's a transactional relationship where both um, parties actually support each other. Yeah, the uh, union supports the community. Community supports the union. Yeah, uh, yeah, and and I think for it to work for unions, it needs to be a two-way street. Um, and in in a more recent dispute that we've had in our union in SIP two very high-profile national dispute, um, which started last summer in, in Dublin as well. Um, it, it, the Cleary's dispute, people can can read all about it online or go to the Facebook page for Justice for Cleary's workers. Again, I suppose from our learning over the last number of years, we knew that we had to quickly build the support of the public for the workers if we were going to win on our demands. In that case, our demand was um, a change of legislation. We needed some certain pieces of legislation change, so it was a political campaign. And also, we ran a campaign around planning issues in the city. Um, so in that case, we, we needed to build a very broad coalition of support. And we did all of the things that, you know, back to basics, we held petition stalls on the main street and asked the public to come up and talk to us. We had one-to-one -one conversations on the street. Um, we um, campaigned in the media. We held a lot of protests and we tried to open up our campaign to allow the public to become involved and to support us. Um, we decided in that instance that the campaign would be very much activist-led um, because we felt that, that the public could identify with the activists and their story very much and that has been successful for us. And I think we're actually getting better as well at, at, um, at manipulating the mainstream media. Um, we need to do that. I think the days are gone where unions do up a press release and send it in and hope to get good coverage. We need to really get box clever in how we, um, in our relationship with the mainstream media. And in this campaign, I think we did. And, and we did manage to get an hour-long documentary on, on the public broadcaster, RTE, television, um, about the campaign, which won further public um, support. And in that instance, we were very convinced, and I, th I think we were correct, that the public would support um, a story of, of the human impact of this particular dispute. It's the closure of a big retail store in the city. And, um, you know, um, there, there there is a trade union story there. And the best trade union story to tell is how did the actions taken by some very privileged 1% um, capitalists in, in closing that store, how did that impact on the day-to-day -day lives of ordinary trade union SIP2 members, low-paid retail workers. And um, I suppose what we did was we juxtaposed 
the um, ordinary workers who many people, most people in society can relate to against um, some very powerful um, vested interests in our society. Um, and we have, I think, generated um, an, an enormous amount of public support for that campaign by just being thoughtful about how we messaged the campaign and what we said about it in public. So, you know, it, it, it's not a campaign of union jargon, if you know what I mean, about the institutions of trade unionism. I think sometimes unions fall into the trap of making it about the institutions like courts or third parties or arbitration. And, and actually, maybe what the public need to hear is not that jargon, but what's happening to human beings. We, at the end of the day, are a movement of human beings. Um, and every opportunity that we can take to put the humanity into our movement and communicate with other human beings, um, we, should, we should do that. Um, and that is a really simple return to basics of trade unionism, what our forefathers and foremothers knew and what we need to relearn across our movement is that to organise human beings, you need to make relationships with human beings. Um, no better way to do that than to meet them <laughs> and to talk to people and have conversations. Um, and find out what are the things that drive people as human beings. Um, so yes, workers, we're an organisation and a movement of workers, but human workers, <laughs> if you know what I mean by that. Um, so I'm, I'm all about trying to bring the humanity back. <laughs> so final question then, and I suppose you might have already answered this in a way, mm -hmm. but if there's one tip or one suggestion that you could give to unions and actives in the North West who are trying to build stronger unions in their workplaces, what would it be? You know what? It, again, it's nothing fancy. Um, it would be about the importance and the power of mapping. And... We, we all know, and it is an absolute truth and a fact, that as unions, we take our power from our density, from how many human beings are in our group or in our union in any given place, whether that's across an industry, like across the health service, across the NHS, or whether it's in a single workplace in local government or power, Power comes from the number of people who are organised. And the best way to know whether we have the power is to just get down and map the workplace and see who is in the union. And I, I try to no longer use the term non-union. I, I try to use the term potential union. <laughs> Everyone's a potential member. Um, so the power of, of mapping is enormous. And when we map and when we have the contact details of our members I'm very big myself on having mobile phone numbers and being able to communicate with our members really quickly so that if something happens in the workplace if there's a change or if there's a negotiation we are able to go directly to our members fast and um, doesn't have to be anything fancy we just say this is happening you're hearing from Unison you're hearing from SIP2 um, and 
being able to communicate our own message and our own story without it being mediated by the employer or mediated by the media, you know, the outside media, is very significant. I think that's how we create an us, a feeling of we. Um, I'm part of Unison because I hear from Unison and I, I feel part of something. So. It's, it sounds very simple. It's not as easy as it sounds, actually. It's very time consuming. And of course, the very best people to map are local reps. And when the local reps know who's in the union and not yet in the union and are speaking to people, that is how you build power in the workplace. That's how you get to an organised workplace. Um, and that is how you see who's joining, you know, who, who's starting in the employment and how you make sure that they're signed up. The best time to sign someone up to the union is when they just start in the job. Yes. Um, so that would, be, that would be one of my tips anyway. That was Ethel Buckley. Next up, James visited the Unison Calderstones Health Branch to meet Unison Branch Secretary Chris Chamley, Assistant Branch Secretary Glenn Harrison and Unison Stewards Anne Rogers and Matt Riggs to speak with them about the very practical steps they've taken in recent years to build their Unison workplace and branch organisation and how their organising work has culminated in their latest win worth up to £1,500 each for 85 staff. Do you want to introduce yourselves to start off with? I'm Glenn Harrison, Assistant Branch Secretary of Goldstone's Healthcare Branch, now Worley, Worley Merseycare Division. I'm Matt Riggs, uh, just a, a rep at uh, Merseycare Worley. I'm Rogers, a rep at Merseycare Worley. Uh, Chris Chamley, branch secretary, Coldstone's healthcare branch. So, uh, you know, Coldstone's branch, which is now Merseycare and, and Worley branch, is that right? Worley division. Worley division. Um, has gone through incredible transformation over the last few years, both in terms of the branch developing itself and building uh, its member and activist base, but also in terms of some of the challenges that you faced with your employer and uh, uh, the work environment as well. Um, can you give us a bit of background to, to, to that whole whole history and what, what's happened over the last few years? I think it all stems back to 2010. Uh, myself wasn't involved as a union representative. Uh, there was issues going on around night contracts. I was a night contract worker myself, uh, and basically there was attacks on basically doing an internal rotation. I didn't believe that this should be happening, and attended a branch meeting with myself and Glenn Harrison, and basically it all stemmed from there. The first campaign that we did was re making sure that night staffs were reinstated as night staffs. After many months of negotiations and holding rallies with members, we basically successfully negotiated that there would still be an art staff team and we would do six weeks of training for support workers and nine weeks of training for qualified nurses, which benefited everybody really. I think it benefited us as, a, as, as the starting point of building our branch up. I think as well that we are now, uh, to sort of show how big of a deal that is, we're the only... Um, hospital I believe I don't want to misquote in the country um, that have a dedicated night team in place um, 
and it were just to sort of protect the, the terms and conditions and the work-life balance of those people that do nights. People don't do nights because they want to be on a working night all night long. They do it for family commitments and, and other reasons. Myself, I'm a night, uh, was a night staff, still got a night contract. And it was because I having young children at the time, and that was pr- primarily uh, one of the big arguments that I had, that work-life balance, people going forward and the reason that they choose a night team, um, and we won. So when you say a night team, do you mean a night team um, of staff or a unison night team? A night team of staff members. I see, okay, okay. So in terms of when that whole um, campaign, that whole dispute started around the night shifts, what was the, the, the branch like at the beginning and how did it transform throughout that process? How did you engage members? Uh, initially, we it was word of mouth. It was, you know, trying to get members to come to meetings. Uh, we wasn't really clued upon the RMS or the warm system. Uh, it was a struggle. It, it were a struggle. So that's RMS and warms. That's the membership database that Unison use. So you, you know, became au fait with that, trained up on RMS. And how did that help you in that campaign? I think by being trained up on the RMS or the warms, whatever you want to call it, basically helps us map out our workplace. It made us look where our members were, where we needed to recruit for new members. It also helped us be able to communicate with our members. Uh, we did get like a block on global email, so that stopped us from communicating with members. By, you know, holding members meetings, getting members to turn up to meetings, asking them to write down their email addresses, the, the place of work, that then started the communication site where then we could send out emails to all our members, then asking them to update their addresses, uh, update the workplaces, uh, and eventually it got to the point where I think we're hitting about 95% of our members now on the warm system through email. And, and, and the other issue was um, that um, right in the middle of one of our campaigns, what uh, Chris uh, talks about was the global email. So. Um, in the past, when we had members' meetings, we were able to relay that to all of Calderstone's staff. The argument from management at the time um, was that not all staff at Calder are members of Unison and therefore aren't required to receive every bit of correspondence that we give out as a union. So taking that on board, we had to kind of chase our tail because communication is, is, is key, isn't it? So we ended up having to put up posters, which sometimes uh, got took down as soon as we put them up. Um, we uh, we ended up holding members meetings, going on toward areas and, uh, and getting the word of mouth going. And so it was very difficult to communicate. That's not a position we're in now. We're now in a position where we can send that email hitting 95% of those members. And the, na- the membership density that Chris talks about, from band twos, threes to fives, we know exactly what kind of density we've got in each area and where we need to work in the future. So, Anne, are you, you, were you uh, recruited as a steward throughout that process since that, 2010? Yeah. So what made you become a, you know active in the union? Um, I was an art, I still have an art contract as well, and I was attending the meetings and I could see um, how active the branch had become. Uh, I'm not saying, you know, it, it wasn't as active, I don't feel, before, um, but 
then I could see how, and everybody was getting on board. Not just night staff, by the way. This was day staff, because it was going to affect them too. They was going to have to go on to nights, and people had commitments on days with flexible working. So we got the day staff involved as well, which bumped up the campaign, because if you just take nights, for instance, we've probably got about 100 night staff where it would affect. So we got the days to, when we, we got them to realise, you know, you're going to have to do nights as well. And lots of people don't want to do nights, so we got them involved, and it made the campaign, or the fight against keeping night contracts bigger. So that's when I became involved. I was going to the meetings, I could see how passionate people were. It was going to really affect me for my work and life balance as well. And I was recruited from there by the regional officer, really, who said, you know, we need people who are passionate about issues in the workplace and do you want to get involved? And that's how I started getting involved. So when you say that um, one of the things that attracted you to begin activist is when you saw the branch was becoming more active, yeah. what kind of things do you mean? What what what? People were attending meetings, because I'd go to meetings and sometimes you could have a handful of me- at the meeting and things like that, but as you started going for meetings, like, the room was packed, it was standing room only and stuff like that, and I realised then that everybody's getting involved. There's not just a few of us fighting for it, like, you know, reps and stuff. You found the members were behind you, and that's the important thing, because otherwise you're fighting a battle between what 12 reps we've got but members are really really got passionate since 2010 I feel about issues in the workplace yeah yeah and also you know on the back of that you had a series of, of, of really really impressive uh, wins uh, which we'll talk about in a bit Chris in terms of um, transforming because a lot of branches sometimes um, find it difficult to get members across to meetings that you know um, sometimes it's difficult to engage members especially when they're split over night and day shifts on different sites and so on they're not necessarily brought easily together what steps did you take you talked about the mapping but what, what other steps did you take as a branch that helped you drive up that engagement I think it was recruiting reps. Our, our main issue was to recruit reps and to get reps in all workplace areas, not days, nights, weekends, part-time reps, anything. Where we knew if we had reps in these places, they could communicate to the members and get it out to the members. You know, if they didn't see posters up where we, where we put out members' meetings, obviously at the very beginning where we didn't have the warm system or you know, to send out for members' meetings. It was relied just on posters. As Glenn stated, these posters used to be taken down. But having reps in them workplaces and recruiting reps, they helped us then to communicate with the members. So on that one-to-one basis, reps going to people in their surrounding work area, having those conversations, was that really, really important? Yeah, that, I think that was one of the most important things. I think how we liaised as well with the days and the nights, that, like you'd mentioned, it, it could be difficult to get people off wards or across different shifts. So as a group, collectively, we'd all thought, what would be the best way to get a, a well-attended branch meeting? And so we tend to do the old-fashioned, what they call a red and blue shift. And so what you tend to work in shift patterns are a Monday, Tuesday, Saturday, Sunday, one week, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, the next. And so you tend to have a, like a, a shift changeover day. Also, between shifts, you have um, where people come on to shift and come off shift. So the best times that we could arrange members' meeting were usually from a six o'clock meeting that get the, uh, the people coming onto the breaks or night staff coming in early before the shift. And the eight o'clock meetings, the people coming off a day shift being able to attend those meetings and if we did that then on the changeover we were more guaranteed a hit in both sets on both shifts so it was kind of a coordinated meeting knowing where the members were and how best to get a meeting that was well attended 
So again, that strategic approach, looking at your mapping, working out how best to uh, catch the maximum number of people and, and make the union accessible to them um, was really, really important in that. Yeah, interesting. So, so Matt, how long have you been a rep with the um, I started being a rep in January 2014. So quite fairly recent, then a couple yeah, of years. Yeah. Have you been a member since? Yeah, since I've been a member since um, since I joined the trust actually in uh, two thousand and six. So how have you, you know, over that process, maybe from two thousand and ten or around then, um, building the branch, uh, you know, changing? It sounds like changing the way that the branch operated in terms of engaging members and campaigning. How do you think members' perception of Unison has changed during that time? Uh, I think they've seen uh, the hard work that we as reps have uh, put in, and uh, which is um, highlighted by the successes we've had. Uh, similarly to Anne, I was attending meetings uh, pre-2010, and, and Chris as well has alluded to it, that we weren't really happy with how things were sort of going in the branch. Um, so you can either sit on the sidelines and mourn about it, or you can get involved and do something about it. So, like I say... Uh, along with Anna, joined uh, as a rep and, and sort of helped that process along. Yeah, fantastic. And, and Chris, how do you think, over that, that time frame, how do you think that the relationship between Unison and the employer has changed? Do you think that, you, that the employer uh, take, take you more seriously now, take staff more seriously? I think the employer takes us very seriously now. I think they do understand we are a branch who are there for the members we are a branch who are there you know to make sure that things are dealt with correctly you know things aren't put through the back door uh, anything that is negotiated or proposed to us by management we will take it back to our members our members will have to say as a as a branch we will not not make decisions for, out, for, for any decisions that may be proposed to us we will always let the members make that decision. If it means going to a vote, the members will get the vote, and then whatever the outcome of that vote is, is taken back to the managers then. Fantastic. And just quite recently, I think a few weeks ago, you had the amazing victory of 85 Band 2 staff who've been upgraded to Band 3, um, which is a significant pay rise for a, for a, for a large section of the, the workforce. Um, can you tell us a bit about that latest uh, latest? episode in the Calderstone saga, what, what happened there? Well, um, so obviously Agenda for Change had come along at the time to harmonise terms and conditions. Uh, we had nursing assistants and support workers when I started at Calderstones. My colleagues who were nursing assistants doing the same job, getting paid vastly more than I was. Well, the same has happened again. There was a conversation, I'm not familiar with the date, Chris might be able to tell you that, um, where Bantus were going to be used more in our organisation. And... We'd considered that if they were to use Bantus, they should be actually used and actually work to their, to their actual job role. And what we had a problem with was, was people coming in as Bantus who were more than capable of doing the job, some fantastic uh, members of staff, but they were working above and beyond the job role. And as you know, if you come into a place of work, you're on a probationary or whatever, you're not going to want to rock the boat and say, well, hang on a minute, that's not my job role. That should be a band three role. And so what we found we were coming up against are many band two members of staff working really unfairly above and beyond their pay grade, whereas the band 
employees were doing the same job but for more money so mm. at the times we'd had uh, constant conversations back and forth with management saying that they were doing above their job role we then went out and got a number of um, Bantu staff to write down what exactly they do day to day and then comparing that with the band threes and highlighting this to management uh, it never really went anywhere we were still sort of treading water um, and then I suppose this all sort of came together um, when uh, as a branch we'd merged uh, with Merseycare realising that Merseycare have far less Bantus in their organisation than us. So Merseycare, just, just to, to recap, that's um, the trust which took on board Calder Stones, which Calder Stones has now um, been, you know, uh, been acquired being by. acquired by, yeah. Uh, so yeah, we're, we're now acquired by Merseycare um, and it became... I think far easier then to highlight the differences in how our branch as a division of Merseycare are trekked in comparison with our colleagues at Merseyside. Um, and I think that kind of showed it up for what it was then. Um, all the work that we'd done behind the scenes started to fall into place. Largely our reps and our members at Calderstone's branch who were involved in all of that work um, it just sort of was the tipping point, I believe, for us to be able to say, well, look as an organisation what you're doing there and look what you're doing here. We're all in the same area, you know, we're all part of the same team and we should be given the same opportunities. And so I think it's around 50% of the band twos that we've got presently will be upscaled. I think you have to look as well as the reasons why band twos were brought into Calderstones. Initially, band twos were brought into Calderstones through the six programme. Uh, it was mainly around financial reasons. We were too small of a trust to survive on our own, hence why we had to be acquired by another NHS hospital. Uh, as this was happening, more and more band twos were coming in. Mars were being put out, and it would be named more at band three people. So Mars, that's um, a mutually agreed redundancy yes. uh, scheme. So that's where people can basically take voluntary redundancy. Yeah. Yeah, and that was being mainly pumped out to uh, your band threes, so we were getting more and more band threes leaving. As band threes were leaving, Calderstones wasn't replacing them with band threes, they were replacing them with band twos, so we got to the point where we have 190 band twos, of which 110 of them are fixed-term contracts now. What, everything that we're going through at this moment in time, with the fast transaction and stuff like that, uh, places around Collarstones are starting to close down. The first lot will be the periphery houses. Now, the organisational change policy started to be used the first time on the periphery houses. Uh, band threes who worked on these periphery houses basically was told that their jobs were at risk and that basically th there was jobs on site, but the jobs on site would be at a band two. This caused uproar between the members and we got told, I think it was it was like a Friday that this was happening. So over the weekend, I think within two days, yeah. we we just communicated with our members and everything. And we ended up having a rally set up within two days. And we had 150 people who turned up at a rally in protest of what they were going to do to band threes and um, not down band them, but through the organisational change, redeploying back as a band two. I think that again alone made Coldstones think what we have as a branch and what we have as members and eventually that was overturned and all staff on the periphery houses was returned on site as band threes fantastic fantastic so just to put
put you all on the spot a little bit. If you had one tip for for, for Unison activists um, in branches where maybe they're struggling to get members engaged, um, the employer doesn't take them um, maybe as seriously, or or, or, or is is uh, maybe their employer is. It, it, finding it difficult the relationship with the employer and um, finding it difficult to get campaigns off the ground what one tip would you give them to, to, to build the branch and to build the union I think the f- first tip would be you you have to be able to communicate with your management it's not you know it's not about being hostile to them and saying right we're going to do this we're going to that you've got to have a good relationship with your management and it's your management knowing you you knowing them then after that it's encouraging your members you know like this might be being done for financial reasons or this might be done for that but it still doesn't, still doesn't make it right that people should be penalised because of financial reasons we're an NHS trust you know you want the best care for your service users that you look after and to get your best care is to have your best staff there and that's basically my opinion you know it's it's all working together you've got to work together you've got to have a happy workforce haven't you and that was the point we was telling management you know the workforce isn't totally happy because people are being used being paid at a band two but being used as a band three and you know the money you're not giving them the right money and we said the workforce isn't happy and we just after the rally and stuff like that they started listening and it's important to have the happy workforce which the chief exec was in agreement with us but at the same time he was saying the money's not there but they were spending money on other things, and we say, you know, that's morally wrong. And eventually, it turned round and it turned good, didn't it? It was. I mean, the cost now. I mean, as I think it's two hundred and fifty thousand pound a year. It has cost now to have these eighty-three band twos uplifted to band three. I think as well, it, it is a combination of things, um, because without the membership, we're nothing. Mm-hmm. And at times, we'd had situations where we were trying to. Um, Maybe negotiations had, wor- had, had worn down and as a union everybody knows that your last stand would be strike action. It's not a decision anybody takes lightly. We also understand then that any ballot that goes on needs to be, uh, you know, um, well, well um, there needs to be plenty of a turnout if possible, particularly now with the trade union bill that's come through. Uh, every ballot that we had uh, came back with uh, every, you know, uh, with a good, strong uh, mandate for, for strike action. And again, this was always a last stand, um, but it was having a combination of dedicated reps giving largely their own time up. Um, that was that was the. The, the massive thing that we needed but on top of that the membership we needed them behind us but we'd also swelled our numbers through activists in other branches um, so if we'd attended rallies for Lancashire Care or Blackburn Hospital or whoever else their fight became ours and, and in solidarity together as unions they all jumped on board so our rallies sometimes will be swelled with activists um, from Trade Union Council, Blackburn with Darwin Lancashire Trade Union Council, we had speakers from the Ribble Valley Labour Party, David Hinder, um, that was through Matt Riggs um, arranging that. Uh, all of us work to our strengths, um, each of us have our own individual strengths and so we tend to sort of work to that as a branch, but it's engaging those members, I think that's what we've been able to do. I think once we we got the night thing, realising that Days is this is going to affect you as well? You know, if you need to stand with the night team on this for this to be um, successful, and then to keep the night contracts, and we've used it now like in other things where it might affect one part of 
the trust. We've said, look, they stood with you on this. Now it's you need to stand with these on this. And even on band twos to band threes, and we have band fives standing with band twos and band threes. And we've got it whole now, haven't we? Remember, they supported you last year. You need to turn out and support them. And we just remind them that we are one big trust. Even though you might be a two, you're a band three, you're a band five, we're all still fighting one thing. And they all turn out now to support each other's what might be, you know, in their area. And that's the thing that we've got now. I think it goes, sorry, it goes back to what Chris was saying before. And knowing where your members are and how to hit your members that for me the time when management really took notice was that rally we heard i mean chris got informed of the uh, redeployment and downbanding of staff as he, as he was walking out the door at five o'clock on a friday night it was a bank holiday weekend as well bearing in mind so that gave us like saturday sunday monday where we couldn't really do anything but we did through social media or whatever uh, and we held the rally the following wednesday so like a five-day rally planning was pretty good to get 150 turnout as well, local papers on board. Uh, and I think, you know, that's when, for me, that's when managers sort of sat up and thought, actually, I yeah, think they also just... sat up and thought, when Glenn went up to, because we could only go so far with the rally and the demonstration without trespassing, because people's family and friends come who don't belong to the trust, so we could only go so far up the driveway. You went then to deliver the letter to Mark Hindle to say the... Um, you know the staff aren't happy about this you was then told it was down we have like a barn where the old meetings and stuff you was told he was down there weren't you with yeah. other people so um glenn said they can't answer the letter just yet they're in a training thing it's down at the site Bank and, barn. and but that is um a permissive pathway so anybody could go down there and the whole of the people who was in the rally said let's take it down there yeah. let them know this training was going on we marched on this permissive path which is in this rural area <laughs> with the drums with, and yeah. the the, if, if you could have been in that area at the That's time, amazing. the people shouting and blowing and not blowing, but they had like whistles and everything, and they would get keep going. Where where is it? And we're like, it's just over there. And we stood outside, and they just wanted to protest there. They wanted the whole of whoever was in this training thing. So they it's actually like did come out. Away day, yeah, it? they came out, and it was. And I think when they seen they wanted to come down there, it was them who said, "Let's take it down there. Let's take this rally down there." Uh, you was a bit concerned about the path at first and I said no it's definitely a permissive path Public so path, yeah. we all went down and I think when they seen the amount of people that were down there really passionate about this I think they realised that it's it's a members led union and we're just the voice for them and we just we do what they want we, we're instructed by them really and we'll fight their cause whatever they want yeah brilliant I mean so so after all all these successes um, culminating in the 85 staff being upgraded to band 3 what, what's next Chris? I think the next step as a branch now is actually keeping the site of Calderstones open. Uh, NHS England now have decided to shut down the site of Calderstones, uh, basically rebuild new units at the cost of taxpayers' money. And it is in our opinion, there's a lot of people who work at Calderstones in the local area, which should have a big effect on them by relocating sites elsewhere. And the main campaign now is keeping that site open. Are you optimistic about that campaign? Yes. That's all for this month. If you found the podcast useful, you can subscribe to receive all future episodes automatically by searching for Organising to Win on iTunes or through your Android podcast app. But more importantly, if you've enjoyed it, then bring the podcast along to your next Unison Steward or Branch meeting. We produce the podcast to share best practice from seasoned campaigners, give a voice to Unison activists and celebrate organising success. It's designed to provoke thought and discussion and help Unison Northwest activists and branches think about different tools and tactics that you can employ to build stronger workplace unions and win for members. So listen to it with fellow trade union activists and discuss what you can do to help build a stronger union in your workplace. 
You can find previous episodes, related resources, and contact us to get involved in future podcast episodes at www.unisonnw.org forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening and goodbye.